As we come to God's word tonight, our text for this evening is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, although we'll read just a bit before that for some context. First Thessalonians is a remarkable little epistle. It's after the book of Colossians. And it was written to a church that was newly formed, but in a time of crisis, a time of difficulty. You see, Paul on his missionary journey had traveled to many places. And as it says in our text in Matthew 10 that we just read, if they persecute you in one town, then flee to the next. This is precisely what Paul did on his missionary journeys. He would go to a city among the Gentiles, establish a church, establish elders in the church, as he told Titus to do likewise. But then persecutions would naturally arise, opposition usually from the Jewish leaders, although not always. When Paul arrived at Thessalonica, he first went to the synagogue, and he proclaimed God's word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in the synagogue for three consecutive Saturdays, but finding a cold reception there, went out among the Gentiles in the marketplace. Finding a warm reception there in Thessalonica. He established a church there. A church that seemed zealous and eager for the gospel at the very beginning. But it seemed as soon as he established this church, and we read of this in the book of Acts. As soon as he established this church, he was driven out. And the church was left. There were some elders set in place. Young believers the founder of the church, the one who could give clear instruction on matters of faith and of godliness and life, was suddenly cast out of the church. It was a hard time for the church. Paul had to go on to another place. But although Paul was absent in body, it was not absent in heart. He sent Timothy to inquire about the church's well-being. He was concerned that their faith may fail. He had good reason to be concerned. Persecutions do not naturally bring people closer to Christ. They often make us wonder if God really cares. Afflictions of many kinds make us wonder if God really cares. And when we're absent with our we're absent of our uh, leaders, it can be a very trying time indeed. But indeed, as he says in another place in the book of Acts, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. And what Paul receives back from Timothy is an encouraging report about their progress in faith. Instead of failing, instead of crumbling under the pressure of this affliction, that church in Thessalonica is thriving. It's remarkable. It's a spirit-worked thing. But there are persistent issues. And so Paul writes this letter in response to that encouraging report that he heard from Timothy. This letter, perhaps one of the very first books of the New Testament written. Let's read then. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll begin at verse 13 in chapter 2. And we also thank God constantly for this. 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what, really, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, apply it to our hearts, we pray, in your Holy Spirit's power as only you can. In the powerful and precious name of our beloved Christ Jesus. Amen. As I said to you, this letter, the epistle to the Thessalonians, came at a time of crisis, at a time of affliction. A young church, a growing church, but a church needing instruction, and a church where its founder is absent. I hope you'll see parallels here to the church in our day. Where is our founder? Where is our Christ? Do we see him? Does he see us? Does he still care? What Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica is a reflection of the heart of Christ for his church. And that's the sermon titled today, The Church in the Heart of Christ. And if you want to put a pin in something this morning, something simple to take home that you can build on throughout the course of this sermon, it's this. The afflicted church is dearly beloved by Christ. And he keeps her in his heart. Christ keeps the afflicted church in his heart. He does care. He loves deeply. And so I want to expand upon this premise in two points this evening. The first point is the church afflicted in the world. The church afflicted in the world. Read with me again verse 17. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, 
We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And I want you to look at those words torn away. Throughout the epistle of Thessalonians, the language Paul employs is consistently intimate. And it ranges between motherly, fatherly, to the language of a child. The way Paul communicates with this young church, this church that's facing such fierce afflictions, is dear. It's intimate. It's as a parent to a child would speak, as a son would speak to his father. That word torn away is really the word for orphaned. Paul feels for this church so deeply in his absence from them that he can say with the deepest honesty, we were orphaned from you. Earlier in the epistle, he says that we were like a tender mother with you. And now he expands upon that by saying, now that we're apart from you, it feels like there's this break, a hole in our hearts we can't possibly fill without you. We're longing for you. We desire to be near to you, Paul is saying. Orphaned in the world. That's what the church is. We're orphaned in the world, just like the Thessalonians were orphaned from Paul's presence. We're orphaned because we lack Christ's physical presence. Perhaps any of you children have ever wanted to see Christ face to face. I know when I was a young man and now as a somewhat middle-aged man, I still desire to see him, to look into his eyes, to see those hands pierced from the cross, to put my hand in his side like Thomas said. Oh, I want to see him. Oh, I miss him. Christ's physical presence is a real lack. For although, as Christ said, it is better that he goes away, in the end it will be far better when we are with him in glory, to see him face to face. The cause of Paul's absence in the Thessalonians' case was the persecution from the Jews. In our case, it's Christ's ascension. And the result in both cases is quite the same. It is a deep sense of longing, of homelessness. We drift about in this world looking for someone to lead us into the promised land. For somewhere to take refuge. Someone who can really make a harvest of righteousness out of the fields of folly we've walked in. Who can do that? I've not met a single man in this world who can. And there is only one, one Christ. And he is the only one that we can possibly have that will satisfy us. We have God's word. God even says in his word through Christ that it is better If he goes away, 
Because if he goes away, the helper will not come. And the helper, the Holy Spirit, speaks through his word, this word. But we still long for a day when we'll be able to see him and hear from him and learn from him and hold him and love him, not through a book, but immediately. Not because we desire his flesh, but because we desire him, the person in that flesh. We earnestly desire to see him again. And the reason why it's better for us now that he go away and that it's good that we have his scriptures in the meantime and his Holy Spirit working through us is because of the second point here. We're orphaned in the world because we lack Christ's presence, but we're orphaned in the world because we lack Christ's spiritual perfection. Christ goes to prepare a place for us. There's a reason he's gone away. Again, the reason in Paul's case is different than ours for Christ. But listen to these words of 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In this time of Christ's absence, it is a time of refining. And I'm positing to you this evening that the place that Christ is preparing is not principally a location in heaven, although it encompasses that. It is a preparation that is inworked in our hearts daily as sin is put to death and we are conformed to the image of Christ. And that, again, implies that there is a spiritual lack. That we lack the perfection of Christ. And that is in part why it's so difficult for us to be away from him. Because we see how far we are from him spiritually. And it presents a danger for us. Being imperfect and without Christ's presence, we're easily tempted to lean on our own understanding. And this gives rise to confused doctrines, such as the Thessalonians experienced. We begin to doubt him and his return. So much of these epistles to the Thessalonians deals with matters of last things, matters of Christ's return. In fact, Every single one of the chapters in 1 Thessalonians, if you have time this week, read through this short and important letter, this tender letter, and find at the end of every chapter or nearly there a reference to the return of Christ. There is a great sense of expectation that Paul is trying to sow in the hearts of these Thessalonians because they've begun to wonder, does he still care? Does he remember us? Paul, who took such pains to plant this church, who was in agony until Christ was formed in them, does he still care? Does Christ still care about us? Confusion as we doubt him and his return. Where is the promise of his coming? He trusts in God. 
Let him save him. And this, this doubt of Christ's coming presents in itself another danger of idleness. We begin to doubt and think that he's slow in coming. These sorts of references often come with the reminders of the nearness of Christ's coming. Don't be, don't be lax because he's at the door. He's at the very gates. And in Thessalonians, idleness is one of the principal sins Paul picks up on in the life of the Thessalonian church. We doubt his coming and we begin to be idle. Idling in good works. We're slow to good works. And that finally produces temptations to further sins, such as sexual immorality. It's, it's an apt phrase and true. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. And the Thessalonians were in danger of idleness and also of sexual immorality. These dangers are all presented as the church is orphaned in this world. But there is a further challenge We're not only orphaned by Christ in this world as the Thessalonians were orphaned by Paul, but we are hindered by the enemy. And I say the enemy when there's really a threefold component to this, right? The Apostle John picks up on this, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three great enemies kind of bound up into one mission. And this hindrance takes different forms. Let's read it verse 18 again. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. We have a real enemy, and thus our plans are often frustrated. Our plans at spiritual improvement, our plans at worship, our plans at doing good. Our plans are often frustrated because we have a real enemy who is at work in the world, at work directly, and work immediately through our flesh, tempting us to sin. It says even just above this, which we read, that the Jews, the Jews that had expelled Paul from Thessalonica, killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind, not just the church. They opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. We do have a real enemy. And we're not strong or clever enough to plan around his many schemes. He, along with his angels, his servants, they hate the church Oppose all mankind? It's like a driving wind. Have you ever ridden a bike? You get going, you're pedaling, you hit a downhill, you kick it up into high gear, and you can pump those pedals, it's great. But a slight wind just kills your momentum. Kills your momentum on the downhill. This is supposed to be the good part. This is the church. We're supposed to be worshiping the Lord. And what's going on in the church? Why do I have all these distracting thoughts about the cares in the congregation, about my life this week? Why can't I just preach? Why can't I just listen? Why can't I just pray? And that's on the downhill. And then it just gets worse. You're going up. You're going up. And it becomes torture. When the hard stuff sets in, when Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and you're just like beat And then you finally get to the end of your bike ride. You arrive at work and you're exhausted. 
You haven't even started. It can poison the whole day. Opposition, hindrance, that's tiny. A breath of wind. Imagine then the whole host of hell, demons, not to mention your flesh that loves to satisfy itself. My flesh that loves to indulge. Imagine that, the world, every temptation for this, that, and the other thing coming at you. A hurricane. You ever tried to bike in a hurricane? Forget about it. This is the opposition, the hindrance. Paul is talking about the experience we have every single day. You feel it, don't you? The temptation to reward yourself for doing one thing well by indulging in something that you don't need or shouldn't have. Cultivating a spirit of idleness and entitlement. The sense of weariness you feel doing what's right, what you know, what society at large has reluctantly agreed upon is for the betterment of all mankind, loving God and loving neighbor. Oh, the first one to a lesser degree. The creeping sense of doubt whenever you pray. The persistent invitation of all that's beautiful in this world for our carnal lust. Isn't it exhausting? The danger is imminent and everywhere. This opposition of our enemy. This is the way Satan hinders us. By hijacking our plans because he can't hinder God's. Despite all our Bible reading plans, our prayer lists, our faithfulness, sooner or later we start to sweat, churning the pedals uphill, in the wind, in the heat, and the day is just starting. That's the hindrance we experience because we have a real enemy. But not just this, one final point on this first component. One final point here. We're hindered by the enemy often because God's intentions are often obscured by our spiritual imperfections. Again, you remember in the first section, we're orphaned in the world Partly because of our spiritual imperfection. Well, these spiritual imperfections often obscure for us God's true intentions. Think of the Thessalonians there, alone, without their founder. Wondering as the weeks pass and pass and pass. Wondering in the age when they didn't have cell phones or instant messaging. Does he still care? Has he passed through town? Well, everyone is telling them this charlatan preacher came through and hoodwinked you into some new religion. He doesn't care. He's gone forever. Confusion, discouragement, and cynicism begin to breed. And it's because of our ignorance of the word. That is the root cause of all of our spiritual imperfections is ignorance of God's word. My people perish for lack of knowledge, says the prophet Hosea. And for this reason... For this exact reason, Paul has not forgotten the Thessalonians. He knows that we have restless enemies. The world hates Christ, hates everything that looks like Christ. Satan is a restless enemy. And we are frequently exposed to great danger in a field of temptations. Our enemies oppose us at every turn. And so Paul knew the Thessalonians needed to cling as closely to Christ as they could, but without instruction, they couldn't. Without knowledge, they couldn't cling close to Christ. They couldn't cling close to him as he clings closely to us. 
And so Paul writes a letter. Paul writes a letter. That's the second point this evening. The second of two. He writes a letter to them because they are on his mind. And he cares about them. He's praying for them. He has not ceased to think about them since being thrust out of their presence. Paul cares about this small, afflicted church. He cares. Paul could have simply satisfied, satisfied himself reading the report of their progress in faith. Hearing about some of the struggles they were having and saying, well, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of good stuff couple of bad things but I'm over here I've got a lot to do so I'll receive that I'll receive that report I'll satisfy myself and leave them to themselves no Paul doesn't do that Paul doesn't do that he wouldn't have written a letter if he didn't care because it was a dangerous journey it was a very dangerous journey and there's a big difference isn't there there's a big difference when you tell someone something that's on your heart and they respond with oh interesting than when if you tell them something that's on your heart and they say, you know, brother, sister, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you about that. I'm so glad to hear this outcome. And have you considered, have you considered what God says in this text? Have you considered what God says here? Can I pray with you right now about that? Big difference. So Paul shows his love tangibly. So is Christ. Every minister of the church, Paul included, is established by Christ and so has the heart of Christ for the church. And the more they reflect Christ as head of the church, the more they care for the church and seek to teach, to encourage, to guide her. And so Paul, in his desire to see the church face to face, is simply a reflection of Christ's desire to see us face to face. It's not just our desire to see him. He wants to see us. He wants to be with us. So let's read then verse 18 one more time with a different focus. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Paul wanted to come to them because he was greatly desirous for them. They were the present object of his affection, even as we are Christ's present object of affection. We are Christ's present object of affection. We render worship to him. He renders affection to us. We adore him. And in a different way, he adores us. It's true. He's continuing in his work for the church. Or how else, might I ask you? How else do you fan into flame a desire for someone who isn't there? How do you keep someone before, the, before you? Surely it's not by thinking about them merely. If you love someone, you're going to show it. Paul does in writing this letter. God does, writing us his word, giving us his Holy Spirit. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, Christ says, and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He went away so that he could come back implications of this then Satan may hinder us but he cannot destroy us he cannot destroy what Christ is preparing for us namely the perfection the perfection that he is preparing for us in righteousness what other reason 
do we need to prove we are near to his heart? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ when he returns. He will finish what he begins. Or to use Paul's words in verse 20, at his coming. Satan can no more spoil you than he can stop Christ's second coming. And not only that, but every time you've forgotten him, in his absence, Christ has never forgotten you. You don't see him, but he always sees you. Children, you remember that from your children's catechism? Can you see God? No, but he always sees me. He always sees me. Not only does Christ keep us in his heart, but Christ earnestly desires to see us face to face. Remember that Christ establishes ministers. Christ established his apostles and their heart for the church insofar as it is faithful to Christ reflects the heart of Christ for the church. And so when Paul says, I, Paul, again and again, Again, desired to see you face to face. That's Christ saying that to you. He says, I want to see you face to face. I want to finish my course. I want it to be done. Because on the cross, Christ said it was finished, but only in the end when there's a new heaven and new earth will he say, it is done. He desires to see us face to face. A verse that I reference often and I frankly never get tired of is John 17, 24. Father, I desire. You know, and frequently the Gospels ascribe desire to Christ. Well, this is one of those moments. Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Christ isn't preparing something for you out there. Just day to day clocking in. He's not just going to work. He's not doing a nine to five. He's around the clock. It's an earnest desire. It's an agony. It's an urgency in Christ's very heart. On and on and on. Giving himself no sleep until Christ is formed in us. Because he desires to see us face to face. Until that imperfection that imperils us now is smelted out and we're made like him until that rift that separates us is completely closed up and we see him until at last we're fashioned into the perfection of the image of Christ like him, seeing him as he is. He won't rest. He does not rest. Oh, he cares. Don't doubt it. He cares. He's not slow as some count slowness. Children, I've been talking to you a lot tonight, but when your daddy goes to work, he ain't slacking off. He's working hard. He's working hard so that he can come home to you. And that's just the way Christ is. Christ is working hard so he can come home to us. 
so he can bring to us a dwelling place forever so that he can establish and reap that harvest. We are that harvest, church, of righteousness that is sown in peace. He desires to see us face to face because now we see in the mirror dimly, and he knows that. We see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. We know in part, and we shall know fully, even as we are fully known, that is the great hope of every Christian faith. To be known as we are fully, to know as we are fully known. And that is the great desire of Christ's heart for us. That's what Paul is after here in Thessalonians. In his affection for these Thessalonians. That's what he's after for every church. And the reason for this is that Christ has a holy discontentment for our present condition. This is not ideal, what we have here. This is not the good life, as it were. Christ has a holy discontentment with our current imperfect status. You know, in the Reformation, there's a famous phrase, famous Latin phrase that Luther coined, simulustus et peccator. We are simultaneously, at the same time, both justified by Christ, but still sinners. That's kind of the Reformation in a nutshell. But Christ wants more than Reformation. Do you know that? <laughs> he wants more than Reformation. He wants transformation. He wants glorification. He wants consummation. He's not content to leave us here in an unideal circumstance. For although we cannot attain unto it, he can and is actively right now. So that he may see us face to face in the perfection of his glory. Seeing him and being like him. And the revelation of his glory from heaven is going to be so huge. So epic. So transformative. When he at last comes to see us and for us to see him. Come Lord Jesus. Come and rend the heavens. Come and rend the heavens that we might see you in your flesh and bone and see divinity incarnate. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, that we may see and be like you. The revelation of that glory will decidedly and forever be face to face. It's one thing for him to behold us. It'll be an entirely different thing for us to behold him beholding us. I hope you can see that everlasting, perfect, unveiled Love, Dearly beloved, we are beloved in the heart of Christ. We are beloved in the heart of the beloved. We are in the heart of his plans, brothers and sisters. And so, proceeding to a final point of this passage, look with me at verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul is fully anticipating that he will not be put to shame in having established this church in Thessalonica. Though persecutions and afflictions have come, 
though there is an admixture of false doctrine and doubt in their faith, though he is apart from them now, he fully expects to not be put to shame in the day of Jesus Christ. And what does he call his joy and glory and crown at the coming of Jesus? Is it not you? Don't you remember? Don't you remember that this minister of the gospel is reflecting the heart of Christ? Christ will not be put to shame on that day. We may be ashamed of some works, the wood, the hay, the stubble, but Christ will not have a single, single, tiny thread of hay to be ashamed of, to be burned up in that fire. Christ will not have a single bit of rotten wood to be burned up in that fire. All will be gold and silver and precious stones, and he will take those things, us, his beloved, fashion it into a crown, place it upon his head, the reigning Christ and his sanctified people. He will not be ashamed of us. Even as he is not ashamed now to call us brothers. Therefore, we are Christ's boast before the Lord. I would not have confidence to say that to you tonight were it not in Scripture. In Jude, in Jude, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy, with a boast. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, oh, Christ is so wise and powerful. Do not doubt that he cares for you. Do not doubt that he cares for Black Forest Reform Church. Do not doubt that he cares for your families. Do not doubt that he cares for the session, for the pastors, for the presbytery, for the church universal. Do not doubt this. He is preparing an eternal weight of glory, a weight that is so heavy we couldn't bear it, but he can even upon his own head. He is preparing a place for us, for his church, even us, in him. We are his boast before God. Do you hear the voice of Christ in Paul? What is my boast? What is my joy before the Father? Isn't it you? Isn't it you? I hope, like me, you feel somewhat inferior to that. As Christ says, when we have done all that we are commanded, we are to say we are but unworthy or unprofitable servants. I feel inferior to that. We're all inferior to that. I am a worm, but not a man. But Christ says, yes, you, you, church, you are my glory and my crown in the day when he is revealed, because he will be revealed in us, in the saints. God's will done. His kingdom come. Honored as it is in heaven when he sits on his throne to judge the wicked men and angels. All who hindered the advance of his gospel will be compelled to look upon the risen Christ and see his glory and proclaim. Even Satan will be compelled to proclaim that he is holy, that he is God, that he is good. Even those who mocked him with the words, look at him, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, they just might say the same thing, but with a different heart. Look at him, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
And the world will want a friend like that on that day. And he will be ours. And we will be his. Even as we are his present object of affection, so shall we be his future crown of glory. Believe that, church. Not only this, we are Christ's joy in the world to come. We are Christ's joy in the world to come. He will present us before God as Father with great joy because all the sin will be smelted off. All the affliction will be no more. Free. Listen to these words in Zephaniah 3.17. What happens when he presents us? Do you want to see it? This is a picture of what will happen, of something that will actually happen. Are you paying attention, church? Listen. Tune in your ears. Open the channels to your heart. Listen to these words. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. In that day, when he is revealed, he will exult over you with singing. And we need to know that today. When we don't see him face to face. We need to know this because we're often discouraged. We're often, we're often tempted to say, count it all joy? Where's the joy in this? Where's the joy in conflict in the church? Where's the joy in conflict in marriage? Where's the joy when I stumble in sin? Where's the joy when authorities shut down churches in China, take their pastors, throw them in prison, and give them no hope of release? Where's the joy when missionaries go to countries like Japan and Iran and see the fruits of their labor die before it can become ripe? Where's the joy? It's not in that. We count it joy. Even as Christ counts his righteousness as ours, it doesn't belong properly to us. Just as that joy doesn't belong properly to those afflictions. It's beyond them. That joy is beyond them because we know that all that affliction is working that weight of glory that will come. That he will bear up in the day when he returns to us. Not now. The joy is ours now. Because it will be ours when the affliction is done. And all those who hinder are gone. <laughs> We're tempted to think that he doesn't care, but that is not true. And the enemy may taunt us, but he does. He has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth. And if Paul said of the Galatians, My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You think if Paul is in anguish for the Galatians, Christ is in anguish until he is formed in us. Believe that. We have affliction in this life. And Christ is striving, giving it everything he has in his infinite divine capacity to ensure that you can stand before his face. That you can see the joy in his eyes. That you can hear him take up that Edenic refrain as represented to him. And he will say, here at last 
is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He wants that day. So do I. So do all who love his appearing. And so we have tonight. I would recommend to you two key responses for this wonderful text that I hope has, from the last two Sundays, brought us into a right frame, a Christ-centered frame, to face affliction. We have two responses. The first is supplication. The first is supplication. If Satan so, hinder us, so hinders us, we need to pray for, for Christ's protection. Pray for Christ's protection. And that is a prayer he loves to say yes to. We need to pray for protection from undue grief in this life. Knowing that trials and afflictions must surely come. Through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom. Even as we read in Matthew tonight. Knowing that Christ also must surely come. And so we pray that those days might be shortened. Those days of afflictions might be shortened. And then knowing finally, as we pray, his heart and his word Relying on his spirit. Hiding his word in our hearts. Trusting. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Praying that he would protect us from undue grief in this life. But also from the enemy's opposition. Supplicating him. From opposition within. And that's principally self and Satan. Most principally we like to attribute so much glory to Satan in tempting us when so often it's just our flesh tempting us, our natural weakness. But the temptations and the attacks of Satan, accusation in particular, is a great thing we need to be protected from. Pray against the accusations of Satan when you're accused. I had a friend just today, just the other day, who was, was, was facing accusations that he wasn't a true Christian because he didn't have X, Y, and Z. And I said, brother, just read Galatians. That's a false gospel. It's not true. We need to pray and have God's word in our hearts against those occasions. Pray that if, Christ, that, that if Satan so hinders us, we must pray for Christ's protection. But then finally this evening, give thanks. I hope your hearts have been stirred up with affections for Christ. And what do you do with affection when you don't see him? You give thanks to him in his absence and you do good to one another. The people who are made not only in the image of God from creation but remade in the image of Christ seeking to do some good to Christ even as you did to the least of these you've done to me says the Lord Christ. Giving thanks to him not only in our words but in our gifts. Giving thanks. Give thanks. If Christ so loves us let us thank him for his affection in our words and in our deeds. We thank him. We thank him as governing head of the church for the conversion of sinners and so participate in the same. We give him thanks for the conversion of sinners but also in his preparations for us in the perfection the spiritual perfection we shall have and also the great hope that we will have new bodies these, these wonderful surprises that he has in store for us. What we shall be has not appeared. A grain of wheat 
does not become a tree unless it goes in. A, a, a grain doesn't become a, a seed doesn't become a tree unless it goes in the ground and dies. A grain of wheat doesn't become a stalk unless it goes in the ground and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so we give him thanks for these new bodies he will be preparing for us. But also the new heavens and new earth. When all wickedness will be gone forever. And all afflictions and hindrances will be gone forever. We may not always in the new heavens and new earth have the physical body of Christ present. But we will ever be with the Lord. Because we will be completely spiritually perfected in the flesh of his flesh. It's incomprehensible, and there is no time to get into tonight. But it is a truly divine mystery that we can give him thanks for, can't we? But also thanking him for his intercession for us. He is presently interceding for us. You remember that thing he said to Peter, that little linky-dinky thing he said to Peter? He said, Peter, you just don't know. You don't know how fierce the battle is. Satan demanded to have you. He came up to my face. He got in my face and he said, Give me Peter. Give him to me. But Christ prayed. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so Christ prays for us that our faith may not fail. Give him thanks. Thank him for that. And finally also for the ordination of his servants, for the ministers that continue to preach the word to serve as deacons in the church. Thank God for your ministers and deacons. But finally, this evening, we thank him as the shepherding savior of the church. We thank him for the assurance of his affection, despite our afflictions and our deliverance from said affliction, both sin and difficulty in this life. I hope that these words will go down deeply tonight, that you will consider this passage further and even read this entire epistle, this, this word, this letter that is from the heart of Christ for a church that is without him. And let us always remember that the church afflicted is in the very heart of Christ. Let us remember it this week and all our days and so count it all joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in awe, in awe that you would save such worms like us and that you would even on the cross declare yourself to be a worm in the very act of your saving worms. Thank you, Christ. Would you get all the glory? Get all the glory, Lord. Fashion us into a crown for your head. Fashion us into the likeness of yourself. Holy Spirit, would you walk alongside us? Would you pray with groans too deep for tongues? And would you please bring us to Christ? Christ, bring us to the Father. Father, thank you for adopting us as your children. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. As we conclude our time of worship tonight, We'll sing in response Psalm 145, Psalm 145, Selection B. Let's rise and respond to the Word of God.